You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. How many of you have dealt with a little anxiety this week? A little bit? Some of you are too anxious to lift your hand? Like, I don't know where this is going. I'm going to keep my hands at my side. It's been a week. From uh, last Sunday, losing a dear member of our church family, Brian Magnuson, suddenly. Um, Jen reached out this morning. She said, please, please tell the church how grateful I am for all of your love and your concern. You're bringing food by. She said, I, I have not hardly been able to eat, but she said, my kids have sure appreciated those meals. So thank you for everyone who has ministered to her. So losing Brian, um, just the unfolding events of the week, I said to somebody earlier, this week has been six months long. You know, you look back and go, really? That was a week? In seasons like this, we turn to Jesus, and it's not always as easy to find him as we wished it was. Have you ever prayed, Jesus, where are you? Even some of his dearest friends in the New Testament were periodically frustrated by feeling like he wasn't where he should be when he should be there. When her brother died, Martha got a little spicy with Jesus. She said, Lord, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. We have all at some point prayed, Lord, if you'd have been here. Martha didn't understand what Jesus was about to do in that situation, but it's not hard to sympathize with her feelings here. Jesus, if you would have been here. Spent a lot of time this week praying, searching the scripture, asking about the presence of the power of Jesus and how badly we need him right now. How badly we need him right now. And it really messed up my sermon prep. Friday evening, I saw John Chisholm at a birthday party, and I said, uh, I've already written two perfectly good messages for Sunday, and I don't like either one of them. So what you're getting, you're not getting all three, by the way. You're just, just getting the third. Where is Jesus, and what is he doing? There is some great poetic passages in the scripture that describe the position of Jesus in relation to his father, But don't always answer that question of what is he doing. John 1, verses 1 through 4 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, with God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. It's one of my favorite passages, but I'm going to admit, knowing where he was in the beginning was not a significant amount of help today. Knowing where he was from the beginning of creation doesn't help us in the moment when we're going through difficult times. It explains his eternal value, but it doesn't have a terribly strong practical application to my everyday life. Because Jesus, we need you now. Today we're going to talk about what is he doing. We're going to spend a majority of our time in the first few verses of Hebrews this morning. 
Because in those opening verses, there's remarkable clarity about the person and activity of Jesus, where he is, what he's doing right now. Just a little context here, because context matters when we're studying a book or we're studying the scripture, okay? Here's what we don't know and what we do know about the book of Hebrews. Hebrews never reveals its author. You search the book, it never really tells you who writes it. Some of you go, well, I know who writes it. No, you don't. You know what somebody told you. But there's great debate over time about who wrote the book of Hebrews. Much of church history, people believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. But John Calvin thought it couldn't possibly be Paul because of the teaching style and the writing style. In early 2nd century, the biblical commentator Tertullian insisted Barnabas wrote it. Martin Luther thought Apollos wrote it. There are a significant number of people who actually think Priscilla wrote it and used masculine language because if they had known it had been written by a woman at that time, nobody would have read it. We don't know who wrote it. But we do know these... Some of you, I just lost you on that one. Like, that was the best part of the message for some of you. It might have been the best part of the message. We don't know. We will. But we do know a couple of things. We do know whoever wrote it was already known by his audience or her audience. Because in Hebrews 13, 23, the author literally says, pray for us, we're confident we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. It's a very personal prayer request. So the author was known by the audience. We see that in various places through the book of Hebrews. Second thing we know is that it was written before 70 A.D. because the destruction of the temple or the diaspora, the scattering of the saints and the, the Jews there in Israel had not happened yet. Hebrews 10.11 talks about sacrifices going on. It says every priest stands ministering daily and offering the repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never be taken away. The shell of the government that existed under Roman occupation at the time of Jesus was shattered in 70 A.D. The Romans came in, chased everybody off. The sacrifices ended, but that had not happened yet. So we know this happened before 70 A.D. If that had already happened, that would have been the controlling narrative of their lives, and he would have never, or she, would never have said this. So all in this context, we don't know who wrote it. We know roughly when it was written, and we know who it was written to. It was written to believers in Jerusalem who'd held on to many of their Jewish customs, as you can imagine they would have, even along with their new faith in Jesus. And it all comes together to paint a picture of the first recipients of this book and perhaps help us join them in understanding, Jesus, what are you doing? The readers of Hebrews, the original readers, would have been asking Jesus, what are you doing? Where are you? So we're looking exclusively at the first three verses of the first chapter, and we are going to make bridge history this morning. Okay, we're going to do a first. Now, when we first started, everything was a first, but there's a few things we've done repeatedly. But this is a first, not only for the bridge, this might be a first for me. I never remember ever having done this before. We're going to preach from the King James Version. Even when we were in Tennessee, I never did this. My first week at Tennessee as a youth pastor, I just remembered this this morning. They stood me up and gave me a proper black suit. I guess they figured I didn't have one and I just needed it. 
And then they expect me to wear it every week. But, uh, so I, but even there, I never actually preached out of the King James. So we're going to do this for the first time. We never have done this before. People often will say, you know, what version of the Bible do you use? Normally I use the ESV. The, the best one for you is the one that captures your heart and you're going to read and do, honestly. Like, I, I tend to stay away from some paraphrases, but, but honestly, the one that you will lock in on, your Bible reading habits will shape your spiritual walk much more than our worship or my teaching. If you discipline yourself and get into the Word, the Bible, the best version to read is the one that captures your heart, and you will actually read tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after that. I love, for the purposes of this passage, the Hebrews, really, the language of the King James. I actually thought about going to the New King James, making it a little easier on you, but I said, no, they're up for it. We can do it, okay? So I want to read the passage, these three verses, in its entirety, and go back and look at specific parts. You know what? Let's stand for this, and let's read this together, okay? Let's just read this passage together. Looking at the first three verses, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray before we sit. Father, we ask that you would take these words and you would apply them to our heart that we would hear what the Spirit is saying through these first opening verses of Hebrews. In this time, as we ask, Jesus, where are you? That we would see you and feel you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The great part of this book is no matter what version you read, it starts the same. First verse, first word, of almost every version that I can find out, is this, God. That's how the book begins, God. One writer says Hebrews starts like an essay, works its way into a sermon, and ends like a letter, but however you want to frame it, it starts with God. There is no ramp up, there's no gentle introduction, no name of the author, no greet the brothers or whatever, there's just God. And assumptions are made here, and they're important ones, about the readers and about God. There is no attempt to prove his existence. Why? Because you do not bother to prove what is taken for granted. You don't go to great lengths to prove or to convince a listener of something they already agree with. If we decide in our big white van that we are stopping at Whataburger... And I make that announcement. I do not need to spend the next three verses explaining why Whataburger is important. Okay? I don't need to convince the crowd. They're all in. Okay, Whataburger, let's do this. And it starts without any ramp up whatsoever, God. The book was written to Jewish believers living in Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of David, and their entire life was wrapped up around this idea of the existence of God. This was the city of God-man transaction. 
So they could start with God without any explanation. Maybe in Babylon or New York or Olathe, you might need to make some sort of explanation about who we're talking about. But to the listeners of this, God made sense. It was that Jewish mind under the anointing of the Holy Spirit that put words to papyrus and wrote Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. They said, look around. He's everywhere. God. Not living in Jerusalem and not growing up with that mindset, we may need a little convincing. So we talk about where is God? Where Jesus, where were you this week? Jewish thought would not be where is God? It would be what is God doing? They already assumed he was there. They already assumed he was at work. They didn't feel it was up to them to prove his existence. It was just a matter of discerning what was going on. Your life shifts when you stop looking for signs of God's existence and you start looking for signs of his hand moving, going, Lord, what are you doing in my life? Where is God at work? Everywhere, if you can see it. You live in the middle of a vast story that he is telling, even in your own life. The Jewish truth of God's hand always at work was something that needed to be explained in some of the other books. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he, he was thinking, I don't have the advantage of the writer of Hebrews, be it me or whoever, to say God. He actually had to lay a case for God. Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, his visible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, his eternal power in the Godhead, so they are without excuse. He's saying, no, there's a case for God. He's explaining it to the Romans when he writes to them, but the writer of Hebrews said, these people don't need to be convinced. God. I want to develop that part of my mind that just doesn't wrestle with where he is, but just assumes he is and starts to look for his activity. I want to assume God is working rather than just want, God, where are you? No, God, what are you doing? What, what am I missing? I know you're, mo I move, you're moving. I know you're in this situation. Where is it? Do we have any Norwegians in the audience? Okay, I'll go slow. Okay, I grew up in North Dakota. Norwegians in the upper Midwest are fair game for jokes. Okay, it's just an accepted part of the culture. If it's cultural, you can't bust on it, right? It's just, a, all right. And it's so much part of the culture, even the Norwegians tell the jokes. All right, they tell jokes about themselves. The greatest Norwegian joke of all time is told by Norwegians, and it was a joke about telling jokes to Norwegians. So it's almost like inception. It's a joke within a joke. Why do you never tell a Norwegian a joke on Thursday? Because they'll laugh in church on Sunday morning. Some of you will laugh at that Norwegian joke later during the game. You're like, oh, I get it. Okay. We can be like that with the hand of God. He moves on Thursday, and Sunday we're like, Oh, that's what he was doing. That was the Lord. I am an expert at seeing the Lord's move, the Lord move in retrospect. Like looking back, right? In the middle, you're like, what's going on? Later, you're like, that was the Lord. He's like, I wish you would have seen that in the moment. I wish you would have assumed I was moving in the moment. 
I want to shift gears and see God's hand moving and what he, as he's doing it rather than later once I've survived it. Most of our prayers are, oh God, oh God, oh God, and later, oh, I see what you're doing. He's like, can you give me the benefit of the doubt that maybe I was moving in that as well? A large percentage of the glory that we give God is not for his hand moving in the moment, it's for surviving whatever happened. Most of our Sunday morning is, oh, thank you, God, we made it through another week. What if it were glory to God, he's going to work in my life this week, and I just don't want to miss it? The writer of Hebrews is saying, this is not some ornate Norwegian joke that you'll get later. He's saying, God, he exists and he moves and he is in the middle of all that is going on, feel him or otherwise. And then he launches into the part that really only sounds right in the King James. This is where, how I ended up in King James this week. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers, by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Sundry times and diverse manners. That sounds amazing. What does it mean? I don't know. No, I mean, but like, you just want to hear Johnny Cash read that. That would like make it even better. In the Greek language, the idea of sundry times means many portions, little it's like time in Tupperware, put in the fridge, like different pieces of time. He's saying, I spoke through these different pieces of time. And no one person in the Old Testament saw the full picture of God. Some saw more than others, but bits and pieces were dripped over thousands of years, and they all got a glimpse. Abraham heard about a nation. Jacob was promised a tribe. David and Isaiah heard about a family. Micah was prophesied through about the birth of where Jesus would be born. Malachi was told about John the Baptist. And all through the Old Testament, there's this drip, 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 drip of who he is. But nobody gets the entire picture. And because they didn't have the entire picture, they didn't have the full understanding. Some of you right now are even with, living with fragmented pieces of God's plan for your life. You've got what you know, but it's like page 17 of a 42-page IKEA assembly manual. How do they draw in Swedish? Like even the drawing's not in English. And you've got just a part of it. Never let the lack of the completeness of God's plan in your life discourage you to the point of abandoning it. Most of what he has done in your life has been piecemeal. And again, you look back and go, oh, I see what you were doing. He's doing it now. So God spoke in sundry times, drip, 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 and he spoke in diverse manners. He revealed himself and spoke through the prophets in as many different ways as there were people to speak through. To Adam and Eve, he spoke face to face. Moses got a burning bush. Elijah, the powerhouse prophet, got a still small voice. Isaiah saw a vision. How many of you would take any of those right now? Vision, still small voice, burning bush, like even your favorite piece of landscape, I don't care. Like anything, you would take that right now. Not every way God revealed himself through the prophets was glorious though. Amos got a fruit basket. Amos 8.1, there's no slide for this. Thus the Lord showed up, behold, a fruit basket of summer fruit. 
Hosea heard from the Lord through his family crisis. Told to marry an adulterous woman, and the Lord said, I will speak to you through this relationship, this relationship that will be painful. I will be with you in it, and you will learn about me. We've got to recognize the voice of God in our lives is not always champagne and roses or the dream that gets shared at the conference. Sometimes it is the pain that you find yourself in, and it's actually God speaking to you about the freedom that you need and others want. He doesn't waste our pain any more than He wasted Hosea's. The writer of Hebrews says, God, who in sundry times and in divers manners spake unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his son. He says, these glimpses that have shown a portion, sundry times, divers manners, different ways of speaking, drip, 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 here, near, here. Nobody's seen the whole meal, but he's got something in the kitchen. And he tells us, that he is speaking that in these last days. Now those who read the words in these last days, at this point in time, are first century believers. The writer probably didn't fully understand, although the Holy Spirit did, that 2,000 years later, people would be sitting in a dance studio hearing the same words in these last days. The picture that he's writing is about to get simpler and clearer. He's about to roll out his master plan in the form of a person, but he predicates it with, in these last days. Now stop for a minute. In these last days. The church body as a whole, not just the congregation, but the the body of Christ, is kind of divided into two groups. Not clearly and not perfectly, but generally. Divided into two groups that when they hear, in these last days... Some of them just kind of slink off. They check out. Others run to get their markers and their charts. Because they're in a Facebook group that they are pretty sure has revealed the Antichrist. You know, it's like, it tends to polarize people. People want nothing to do about it or it's all they want to talk about. I want to approach this a third way. What is he really saying? A common criticism about talk of the last days in Scripture is people have been saying this for as long as we remember. Everybody says, my grandma always used to talk about it. Yes, but quite honest, in the grand scheme of the arc of history, you know, grandma wasn't that long ago, okay, for one thing. That's just, you know, your life is, I know you think it's everything. It's a dot on the timeline. It really is. But how can we talk about the last days if they said this 2,000 years ago? Two reasons this matters, okay? First of all, he is referencing a period in time, not a point in time. He is talking about the age of the Messiah, from the birth of the Messiah, all the way through the crucifixion and his return. It is a long period, and it is the last period, but it's not a specific moment in time. So when he says the last days, he is saying the age that we are in. Second of all, no matter what you believe about the end times, as we think about it, the increase of pressure on the earth and the return of Jesus to set up his throne and make all things right, whatever your feeling is on this, if you think it's 50 years or 500 years or you're not even sure if I'll get a chance to finish this sermon, wherever you are on that spectrum... This passage remains a reality, Revelation 19, 11, and 12. I saw heaven opened, 
And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Whether you are thinking about this passage all the time or you're avoiding this passage all the time, this at some point will be your reality because how long do you actually intend to live? Those of you who think this is a 500-year reality, that you may actually be true. I, I mean, I don't think so, but you could be. I can't prove you're not, but I can tell you this, you won't be here in 500 years. You're all living your own end times. Most of you have lived half your life already. You do not have forever. Even if the earth does, you don't. And I have talked to many people who've said, I don't think he's coming back for a long time who didn't get a chance to wait. And now they're gone. You are living more than likely in the final decades of your life, or you might have five, six, even seven left. That's not many. They go by fast. But these are everyone's last days. Everyone he wrote to in the moment have already met this man on the horse. They've already come face to face with him. So for this purpose, he means the final section of history. For your purpose, specifically, understand what he means is even more intensely true because we are all living in our last days. Again, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, God who in sundry times and diverse manners spake in times past unto the prophets, fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed, heir of all things, by whom he has made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high." Whereas he spoke to different people in different ways at different times, he now speaks to us with full clarity and full voice with his son. Jesus is not the messenger. Jesus is the message. It wasn't coming through the personality of a prophet. It was coming straight from the throne. This is the fullness of God's message because Jesus was fully God. He was appointed the heir of all things. We joke with our oldest son, Jackson, once in a while. He'll come over to the house, and, you know, the house is full of kids, and neighbor kids are running in and out, and it's crazy, and we're trying to make tacos, and the van is leaking oil out in the driveway. We joke with Jackson, and we say, someday all this will be yours. I say that because I think it makes him pray for our health, you know? Like, oh, bless my parents, indeed. Even though Jesus was an uncreated being, he was there at the beginning, and God used firstborn language to describe his relationship with Jesus. He says in 1 Colossians 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. He inherits everything. The writer of Hebrews is saying that this messenger, Jesus, was the point and the recipient of all things created by the Father. It shows Jesus at the beginning of creation, and it says that all things were made for him. The question is not, where is Jesus in our lives? The statement should be, my whole heart is what Jesus deserves in all of this. 
I am not a pawn on the chessboard. I am an inheritance of the firstborn of all creation. The writer goes on to call Jesus the brightness of his glory. The ancient Greek word for brightness there is apikosma, or the radiance that shines from the source of light. Throughout the Old Testament, what they saw in the way of enlightenment was like a beam, a beam coming through the window, and they saw the dust particles. They could kind of see there was something there. There's more there than we realize. Jesus comes on the scene, and he is the radiance. He is like looking directly at the sun. He is the radiance of God's glory. That's why Jesus was able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's like, I am the same. I'm the express image of this person. I am the same. Often you see similarities among people. Oh, you look like so-and-so. Recently, my, my kids were looking through old pictures, and they ran across a picture of Kelsey's younger brother as a, a little boy. And oh, he kind of looks like Zion a little bit. You see similarities. But nobody is exactly the same as another person. Even identical twins. I was, I, actually, I, was like, I was looking this up this week to make sure I was right. Even identical twins generally have some difference. And even if they don't, trust me, the last thing you want to do to twins is refer one by the other's name. You don't want to do that. They'll tell you, no, I'm my own person. What is described here in the play of Jesus is supernatural and perfect. The express image, the perfect example to see Jesus is to see God. When we look at the life and the teachings of Jesus, we realize that a lot of what, what we think about God is actually wrong. God is not religious. He's relational. God is not an icon on the wall. He's a man seated at your table. God is not angry. He is loving. God is not vengeful in a human way. He is just remarkably consistent and cannot bear some things. Hebrews calls Jesus all of these things, and then it takes a sudden turn. We're no longer thinking about history or even only thinking about Jesus. The writer pulls you and I into this storyline, and he calls Jesus something that now we have to engage our story with, as he says that Jesus is the purger of our sins. Suddenly, this isn't just about Jesus. This is about us. Let me summarize our problem here, and I throw myself into this group. It's not that we're just not good enough. It's not that if we were better, it would be okay. We are not just deficient. A deficiency can be made up. If your budget is short, you pick up another job. You do something with the areas that you are deficient. We are not just deficient. We are the wrong stuff altogether. We don't need to just get a little better. We need to be made brand new. Our problem is now this. We are who we are and what we are and what we are is insufficient underpowered prone to wander and then to quit and we know who we are and what we are and we know that he is faithful and true he is the express image of the father the source of light he is all these things and he comes to the table also as the purger of our sins even if we could do better and frankly you can't do much better I can't even if we could do much better, we couldn't be what is required. 
We couldn't be what is perfect. Voxels just got back from Hawaii. If their flight had been canceled, and if Derek would have said, well, you know, we'll just swim. We'll just swim. We'll make it. One of them made it a mile. One of them might have made it two miles. One might have made it three miles. Nobody made it. Why? We just can't do that. And even if you are a little better than the person you're sitting next to, or they're a little better than you, none of us really have the stuff to make it, or to be who we want to be or need to be before a holy God. Jesus is our only way to God, not only because of our failures, but because of our complete otherness. And Hebrews says, he is the purger of our sins. Some of you live under great duress because you know too much, (laughs) like you know the truth about yourself. You know the truth is you are unable to measure up and you have tried for decades. Nothing will get you there. No tool, no book, no sermon, none of it. No prayer model, nothing makes up for the gap because it's not just a gap, it's you are completely other stuff than what we are called to be. What could be worse than being right and convicted about it? It's like, you know you're right and you still can't make it. You know that even if you doubled in holiness every day, you never make up for it for the rest of your life. You're starting at such a different place, you'll never make up the gap. Jesus steps up, not to make us better at who we are, but to make us holy other than. To purge us of our sin, to free us of our guilt, and to let us live before a holy God. And then he does this crazy thing that's mentioned. He sits down. Sits down at the right hand of the Father. Now, this picture for us is a little bit ethereal. It's hard for us to imagine what this all looks like. We've never mentally had an accurate picture of our sin keeping us from God or there being places that we physically couldn't go because of our sin. While we sinned, we might have felt some sort of remorse, but we never ever felt constricted by it. But remember that passage we read earlier, the one that showed that the Hebrews were in Jerusalem still before 70 AD and the sacrifices were still being made, this was concrete to them. This was real to them. They had smelled the burning flesh of the sacrifices. They knew the priest by name. They knew it was a part of their everyday reality that that sacrifice was offered every day. Why? Because it didn't last. Hebrews 10, 11 to 13 says, Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And he draws their attention to that picture later on in the book of Hebrews. He says, remember that? It just goes on and on and on. So they know they can't approach God ever. But it goes on to say, but this man, this is in Hebrews 10, but this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies were made his footstool. Jesus purges your sin, sits down by his Father, and waits for the fullness of all time when everything is subject to him. Where is Jesus right now? Having purged our sins, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Other place in Scripture says, making intercession for you. What is your role? 
to live in the freedom that comes with being forgiven and the hope that every wrong on the face of the earth that we are encountering right now will be made right. Some of the angst that you're in right now this week are because of true, profound wrongs that have happened and you are, don't know what to do. One day, all wrongs will be made right. One day, everything will be accounted for. Where did the writer of Hebrews get this idea, merging the reality of the sacrifice with that idea? He pulls it out of Psalm 110 where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I'll make your enemies a footstool. Where God invites Jesus to do this. And when it happens, and everything is subject to him, verse 3 says, Our people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. He says, the people of the earth will serve you with gladness as you sit next to me in the fullness of time. When God's people, like us, are convinced of Jesus' position, even today, they become a force that is unequaled on the earth. It has been a week that was six months long. And it may not get easier soon. But Jesus is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his Father. He offers one sacrifice for all that purges, purges us of our sin and sits down at the right hand of the Father in full power, knowing one day all wrongs will be made right. And when it happens... Our hearts will rest. That's what he's doing right now. Stand with me if you would. Just bow your heads for a moment. Jesus, we ask that our hearts would be hooked on that moment when all wrongs will be made right. We ask that we would see your Son seated at the right hand of the Father, radiant in glory, the perfect representation of the Father that he loves so much. And we ask that we would see your hand move in our own lives in the moment, however you speak to us, God. If we get a burning bush, or if we get a moment of pain, we ask for your hand to be revealed. Right now I ask for those that are in deep pain that they would see your hand moving in their life. They would sense your nearness, even sense your intercession for them before the Father. We position our hearts in the way of the Hebrews. God no prefects, no ramp up, no argument, the existence of a holy God who made a way for us to know him and to be his inheritance. And we ask that we would volunteer freely in all that you are doing in our lives. 
we ask for your nearness on our city right now. That the grace of God would be poured out on hurting hearts. We ask that you be with the Magnuson family right now. That they would sense your nearness and the blessing of God. Speak blessings over our church family. We would walk in the knowledge of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you.